friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live. <laughs> Welcome back to the shit show. Yeah, you, you, I think I almost think your headphones might have won that. Yeah, my headphones got stuck in my hair, and I don't like it when my hair is in my face. I'm a nervous hair toucher, and I just don't like my hair being in my face. So I really just panicked and and ripped it off my head, and it was a whole show. But She's yes, welcome lying. back, welcome back to podcast by proxy, and here we are. She does very much touch her hair. Yeah, actually, I was just talking and her to eyes. My friend is doing my hair and makeup for the first wedding that I'm in in a couple weeks. And she was messaging me, asking me, like, what hairstyle and stuff I want. I was, like, sending her all updos because I was like, I need my hair off my face. I am a hair toucher. Mm-hmm. So, anyways. It's, yeah. And you touch all of your hair. It's not like you just play with the ends of it. You touch the roots of it a lot. Yeah, and then I wonder why my hair gets crazy so fast. And then I blame yeah. it on my hair type. Like, I don't stick my hands in my hair all day long. No, I think it's more your hands in your hair. Watch you actually have very normal hair and you've been like treating it completely wrong for years. Oh, probably. Ah. I wouldn't be shocked. Happy Sunday, everyone. I just got in from doing a whole bunch of yard work. We're going to redo our whole front and back lawn, which really isn't that much of a surface area, <laughs> but it's still a lot of work because it's covered You make in it sound moss. like you have like an acre. We're doing right? the yeah, whole back front. The back and front. whole back and front yard. It's like the smallest amount, but... It's a lot of work because it's covered in moss and we're in like a really damp area. So we have to break it all up after we killed it. And it's just a whole shabacle. I would just do like some type of like ornamental grass or like clover or something and call it a day. Oh, no. I would even leave it as moss. No, no. We're we're doing the whole nine yards. We are growing it all back. He's getting lime to prevent the moss from coming back in the future. We're going to lay sand. He's going to aerate it. He's really living his best like middle-aged white man lawn life right now i just picture the sandals and shorts with lots of pockets a hundred percent what do you think he was just wearing shorts socks slides yard work well tell him to be extra careful with that lime stuff or people are gonna think you're killing somebody yeah, that's fair. I didn't I think of that. My neighbor amount. actually just suggested it because I guess they did the same. We live in a really shaded area, so it's really easy for moss to grow in here. And like our house specifically is the shadiest. That's you should funny. grow mushrooms. I We definitely could. That would be a, probably a huge success at your house. And people would be very jealous because not many people can grow them. We pro- That was probably the only thing that would thrive here because I tried gardening last year and not many things thrive in this backyard. Apparently, the last no. people who owned this house and they were like gardener extraordinaires could not get grass to grow in the backyard. So I'll be impressed if we do because we're getting like all full shade stuff and he's going to like do his best to make it work. But I'll be impressed if we get it done. Yeah, I will be very impressed as well. So stay tuned on the yard adventure can you tell I'm in my 30s now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 30s engaged. Yeah. It's like a gear. Guess what happened yesterday? Oh, what? I lost the stone from my engagement ring. <gasps> no. How 
did yeah, you do so that? Yeah, so now there's just like a big gap in it. I don't know if you can see it, but like How? right there. What happened? I have no idea. It just like fell out at work. So do you have it? Like you can get it put back in? No, I don't have it, but it's ins- it's like got coverage for the first year if any stones fall out. It's insured. So That's now good. I'm going to pay to get the insurance moving forward if this is to happen again. There's so many little teeth, though. This has always been, like, a fear of mine. And I don't want to have to wear one of those, like, fake rings or rubber rings or workout rings or something. Like, yeah, yeah. Like a silicone like, ring. A lot of people my wear ring. silicone rings to the gym and stuff. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like when I eventually do get engaged, I should just I should just be proposed to with a silicone ring. Because I feel like yeah. I will be the type of person that gets a silicone ring and I'll wear it all the time. Oh, yeah, you'll just forget to change it back to the other one. I'm just not a careful person. Like, destructive, chaos, will break. I wore my rings to the gym one time and just fully bent them. Like, (laughs) yep. Dumbass. Well, and I have, like, a moderately physically... No, I have a pretty physically demanding job now. So it's like, am I going to just ruin it? And, like, did the stone fall out because I've hit it on something or caught it on something that's, like, weakened it? I don't know. I just, I don't know. You could get one of the silicone ones. Get, like, a white one. They're pretty. It'll get so dirty where I work. Mm, that's true. What a struggle. What a first world problem to have. First world problem. What a first world problem to have. This is well, like I'm... Kim losing her diamond in the pool, isn't it? Kim, there are people that are dying. Yeah, Kylie Jenner really saved the day, though. Yeah, totally. Um, Well, that sucks, and I'm really glad that you can get it fixed, but you're probably right. Getting the insurance moving forward might be a good idea to protect yourself for longer than a year. Yeah, agreed. I mean, they're delicate things. I have multiple friends that are engaged right now, and I always look at their hands, and I'm like, damn, you got a lot of money on that finger. Yeah, I, there's a few things that I've, like, really taken it off and given it a good eyeball. There's a few, like, structural changes that I might see if a jeweler could make now that this physically belongs to me. Like, there's ways that I see it could be stronger. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to see if it's possible. Yeah, I'm sure it is. They can customize so much stuff nowadays. I know. Um, Yeah, so before we start, we do have a really cool episode today, but we did want to acknowledge the tragic killings of two Edmonton police officers who were shot in the line of duty on Thursday, March 16th. Um, Constable Travis Jordan, who was 35, and Constable Brett Ryan, who was 30 years old, were killed while responding to what police described as a family dispute and an apartment complex in the city's northwest. Um, the shooter or the the person suspected of shooting the officers is a 16-year-old who is also dead, and it's believed he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, we just wanted to say our hearts go out to the families. This this was yeah, extremely tragic. Um, everybody involved. It's really, really sad. And um, mm-hmm. so we just wanted to say our hearts go out to everybody who was involved in this. And yeah, we're thinking of you. And of course, to those officers, like, thank you so much for your service. And yeah, super sad. Very um, so yeah, I didn't I didn't go too much into that. I just it did happen and I wanted to acknowledge it. Um, 
I think there's it's... a lot of information that we don't know yet, so yeah. we don't also want to spread anything that's inaccurate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I usually try to wait for these things because, yeah, more information will continuously come out and we really don't we don't know everything right now. But uh, two people were still killed and um, of three course, people, some, three people and somebody lost, you know, sons and cousins. Yeah, and I mean, friends regardless, and... it's a 16 year old yeah. that felt the need to do that. that. I think there's a bigger picture there and that's sad all around. Yeah. And uh yeah, there was a woman taken from the scene with serious injuries, and it was confirmed to be the 16-year-old's mother as well. So, of course, we're thinking of her, and our heart goes out to literally everybody who was involved in this. Well, I hope she gets better, event. whatever happened. Yeah. In every capacity. Yeah. Um, but today, we are actually going to talk about a Canadian airplane mystery. Um I was recently watching the Netflix documentary on the missing Malaysian Air flight MH370. That actually happened when Katie and I worked together. I don't know if she remembers it at all, but I like 100% remember that. But not really. And this kind of lends to what we were just saying before we hit record. Yeah, so like... A lot of people know about missing flight MH370, which is has yet to be found, which is so crazy to me. Um, the documentary was pretty well done, but of course, because it's a missing flight, it is a lot of just like conspiracy theories and theories about what think happened. And those aren't always my favorite because they're not entirely factual. Um, but still, of course, like it's a mystery that needs to be solved. And it was it was good. Um we all also know about D.B. Cooper, that mystery from the States. It's a really, really well-known like aviation mystery. Who the heck is D.B. Cooper? Not a lot of people, though, have heard about this one from what I've gathered. And this is uh, the mystery of what happened to Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21. This is a case suggestion by listener Patricia. So thank you so much, Patricia, for sending this in. Uh, I've been really leaning into the case suggestions lately. But yeah, this one really stuck out just with the whole airline mystery documentary that just came out on Netflix. And it is it's really shocking to me that this specifically isn't well known like those other ones that I mentioned. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I... When you brought it up to me, I, like I said, it sounded familiar. I vaguely remember it, but not really. I don't know how this just kind of went under my radar. Well, this this one that I'm going to tell you today, Flight 21, took place in 1965. No, but no, like, I mean the other one, though, that when you first brought it up to me, and you oh, were like, do you remember this? I was like, kind of. Like, everything airplane goes under my radar. I don't know how. It's like those just... You should watch know. that documentary with Simon. It's very interesting and it'll make you go like, what? Like, what the fuck? What the fuck happened to this airplane? Now, granted, the ocean is freaking massive, so. It could be anywhere. Could be anywhere. Uh, no, but it, it's, I'm not going to say much more because you haven't watched it and you don't know a yeah. lot about the story. Let me take it a is, look first. It is wild and also really sad for all of the families of people who were on board. However, we will swerve over to this Canadian aviation mystery. Swerve on July over. 8th, 1965, Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21 took off from Vancouver International Airport at 2.24 p.m. with a final destination of Whitehorse. 
Okay. The flight was known as a milk run flight, meaning that along with carrying passengers, the flight was also delivering like fresh fresh food, Fruits, produce, vegetables, yeah. medical supplies to dairy. No- <laughs> yeah, to northern communities. Um and it they it makes like several stops along the way. Yeah. Places where agriculture is minimal because of their like weather conditions. And they need just general household supplies. I was going to say, a lot of northern communities do still rely on milk runs, um, but they were really popular in the 60s. They still exist today for many, like, really small remote cities in the north only. Um, A lot of them only have access to modern amenities via airplanes and ferries. Um, Even things like delivering their mail, they rely on these milk run airplanes to do so. You get your mail, like, once a month. Yeah, back in 1965. Or sometimes quarterly. Mm -hmm. Back in 1965, though, this specific milk runs route was set for to stop at Prince George, Fort St. John, Fort Nelson, Watson Lake, and then finally arriving in Whitehorse, which is in the Yukon Territories. CPA Flight 21 never made it to its first stop. To Prince George? Did not arrive. What happened to my voice? Prince George? Yeah. CPA Flight 21 did not make it to Prince George. From Vancouver. Wow. Mm -hmm. From Vancouver. So Canadian Pacific Airlines operated from 1942 to 1987 and was headquartered at Vancouver International Airport in Richmond. It was eventually purchased by Pacific Western Airlines and then absorbed into... Uh, Canadian Airlines International, which was eventually bought by TransCanada Airlines, which we know now as Air Canada. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It was a lot, but it makes sense. (laughs) The president of Canadian Pacific Airlines was Grant McConaughey, who started his career in his 20s as a bush pilot in the north. George William Grant McConaughey was born April 24th, 1909 in Hamilton, Ontario. He grew up in Calder, Alberta and developed an interest in aviation as a teenager, obtaining his pilot's license at the age of 20. Wow. Good for him. Absolutely. Uh, I have a cousin who also became a pilot really young and it's so impressive to me because there is so much that goes into it and you have to like... Put so much like now, anyways. Maybe not back then, but that like now you have to put so much of your own time and money too into that. It's wild. Yeah, I mean the hours you have to get just in the air to qualify is crazy. Mm -hmm. And like you're paying for all of that. Yeah, and guys, you think gassing up cars is expensive right now? Try an airplane. Ooh, right. Within a few years. McConaughey, who went by Grant, was running his own fleet of bush aircraft, including ski and float planes. He started a passenger airline in Western Canada called Independent Airways in 1932 with Maltese princess Marguerite Therese Reynard Carcass and her husband, the Russian prince Leo Alexandrovich Galitzin. Wow, those are... Isn't that just extravagant? Wow. I know. Just wow. wow. That, that was also my my thoughts was just, I have nothing else to say but wow. Fun fact, my mom dated a float plane pilot for many years. So we got to... Frankie's growling. I don't know why. But he lived in Vancouver, so we float planed a lot That's for a so few fun. years. 
I dated yeah. somebody who like worked for the float planes. He wasn't a float plane pilot, but he worked there. So I got like the $10 standby passes. flights. Yeah, the yeah. buddy passes. <laughs> Man, it was so elite. I didn't take the ferry for like a whole year. Oh, Amazing. Feels nice, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Those of you who live on the 30 island 30 minutes know. later. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, n- n- definitely not a struggle everyone can relate to. But like if you live on Vancouver Island or any form of island that you can like only leave by ferry or plane, you know the planes are elite. Yeah. Yep, yep, uh, yep. This airline flew from Alberta to the Yukon and Northwest Territories. Uh, The princess died in childbirth in 1934 in Egypt, and the airline business that they owned together subsequently ended also. Oh, okay. McConaughey met his wife Margaret in 1935 when she was admitted to an Edmonton hospital where she worked as a nurse. Sorry, he was admitted to an Edmonton hospital. She worked there as a nurse. That's where they met. I was going to say, if she worked there as a nurse, I don't know how they crossed paths. No, he worked. Uh, he was there as a patient. As a patient. She was a nurse. Yes. <laughs> okay. Margaret what and Grant were married story. on July 6, 1935, and she was taken to the Bush Plain base at Takla Lake to live with him. Yeah, the meeting at the hospital as a patient and she was a nurse just like screams the 60s to me. It reminds me of the notebook. Oh, totally. Right? Yeah. Yeah, how she's like the army nurse and like takes care of people and stuff. And like, yeah, you just picture them. It's their meat cute. <laughs> Uh, Marco was pretty tough. She was raised on a farm that her father had homesteaded in the Peace River country. So, like, the rustic nature of this, like, bush plane base didn't really bother her at all. Like, it was a bit more <clears throat> rough. Feels like than, home. It was a bit rougher than she was expecting, but she was like, meh, whatever. Yeah. Not long after marrying Margaret, Grant started an airline called United Air Transport. He was constantly striving to expand this airline. In 1938, the company became Yukon Southern Air Transport, uh, connecting Vancouver, Edmonton, and the Yukon. Okay. It it also had stops in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, delivering mail, freight, and supplies into remote areas of the provinces. In 1941, Grant sold Yukon Southern Air Transport to the Canadian Pacific Railway Company, along with the acquisition of nine other small airlines, including Ginger Coot Airways, Wings, Prairie Airways, Mackenzie Air Services, Aero Airways, Starrett Airways, Quebec Airways, Montreal and Dominion Skyways, and Canadian Airways to all form what would become Canadian Pacific Airlines. The first one, Ginger Coot. <laughs> yes, like, what the fuck? I saw you Google it, uh, giggle at that. Sorry, Google at that. Oh, yeah. I saw, I saw Katie I, immediately. I, I did not Google, but I giggle. You did. So yeah, the uh, Canadian Pacific Railways acquires basically ten small airlines uh, with. Grant McConaughey and they create Canadian Pacific Airlines and the company appointed Grant McConaughey as its general manager at the time of formation. Okay, understandable. Grant would become the president of Canadian Pacific Airlines in 1947 and as president, McConaughey embarked on an expansion that made the company the second largest carrier in Canada and the dominant airline for the Canadian West. Oh, 
He obtained landing rights at the Tokyo and Hong Kong airports that opened the door to CPA's highly successful Trans-Pacific service to Australia, Asia, and the South Pacific. And under Grant McConaughey, the airline also expanded with transatlantic Atlantic flights to Portugal, Spain, and the Netherlands, as well as the South of Mexico and South America. He was really like a trailblazer in Canada for international expansion of flying. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, like, nothing went outside of Canada at this point, airline-wise, and all of a sudden he's like, bing, bing, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, he was a huge part of Canada getting... Um, airlines into so many different other parts of the world. Yeah, good for him. Grant McConaughey died of a heart attack at the age of 56 in a hotel room in California where he had flown for a business meeting. It was only nine days later that Flight 21 would go down. God. It always makes me sad when people just, like, die of natural causes in a hotel room alone. Something about that is, like, really depressing. Yeah, I guess he had been having health problems, and he had spent a period of time in the hospital in Vancouver, and then he was supposed to go to this business meeting, and Margaret was flying across the country to go visit their son, and she, like, didn't want to go. She just had this weird feeling that she shouldn't leave, but she did anyways, and he went to his business meeting, and he literally checked into the hotel, went to his hotel room, and he died. Jeez. Yeah. You want the guilt she must have, or just like questioning, must have yeah, been so I mean, hard. Yeah, nothing you could do at that point, and but no. yeah, totally. I know, super sad. Flight 21 was uh, the first plane of four Douglas DC 6B planes purchased by President Grant McConaughey in 1953 after spending years pushing for bigger and faster ways to transport passengers and freight. It was named Empress of Buenos Aires. The Douglas DC-6B is a piston-powered airliner and cargo aircraft built by the Douglas Aircraft Company from 1946 to 1958. Douglas built over 700 of these aircrafts, and while most of them are inactive, stored, or preserved in museums now, some do still fly in cargo, military, and wildfire control roles and in northern bush operations in Alaska. Okay. So, so they're very situationally used. Yeah. Um, okay. But Grant McConaughey purchased four of these back in 1953 for CPA. Um, and Flight 21 was the first one of those planes that was purchased. Okay. And you were saying they're typically not like passenger planes, but he bought them for passenger planes? So at this point, yeah, they were... They were like a more popular option for passengers and freight at this point. They're just not really used anymore. Okay. Because we have like better planes now. I don't know. I'm not an aircraft expert. I'm just, I I did the research. (laughs) Every time we go anywhere, I feel like it's a Boeing. That's the only reason I'm like, I know they are equally as controversial, but. The Douglas DC-6B sounds like it was a really popular option back then. Um him acquiring these four planes was like a really big deal and like allowed the company to do uh, a lot more um so yeah at the time it seems like they were the bee's knees but not anymore apparently not on july 8th 1965 the empress of buenos aires was being piloted by world war ii veteran john Steele, who went by the name jack 
The flight took off at 2.24 p.m. from Vancouver International Airport en route to its first stop in Prince George. The flight path was followed for 45 minutes and then changed course to avoid turbulence and a thunderstorm ahead. Okay. En route to Prince George at 3.29 p.m., the pilots reported to Vancouver Air Traffic Control Center that they had just passed over Ashcroft at 16,000 feet. They estimated they would be in Williams Lake at 3.48 p.m. Okay. At 3.38 p.m., Vancouver Air Traffic Control called Flight 21 and did not receive a response. Just after 3.40, uh, so just two minutes later, Mm -hmm. air traffic control in Vancouver heard three mayday calls from the pilot of Flight 21, and then things went quiet and Flight 21 vanished from radar screens. That's so scary. At approximately the same time this occurred, a four-engine aircraft, which was later identified as Flight 21, was observed by witnesses flying in the clear over the Gustafson Lake area about 20 miles west of 100 Mile House. The aircraft appeared to be in normal flight when an explosion was heard and then smoke was seen and it appeared the tail of the plane had separated from the fuselage. Which is literally just the main body section of the plane. <laughs> what a fancy word for it. I know. I was like Googling what the hell that was. And I was like, oh yeah, it's literally just like the body part of like the main middle section. I have to go on an airplane in like next six months. So please don't scare me too much. I won't. Okay. The plane was then observed in a nosedive, spiraling to the left before crashing into a wooded area four and a half miles north of Gustafsson Lake. I feel like you just lied to me. Well, I mean... I won't. And then it took a nosedive. I mean, oh. what do you want from me? I'm telling a story. I know. I know. This happened. I know. I know. I know. But at least you will be happy to know that it wasn't just like a plane malfunction. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of the reason that this plane went down has to do with the lack of security that we have plenty of nowadays on planes. Okay. So you shouldn't feel scared based on this story. Thank you. You're welcome. The accident occurred at approximately 3.41 p.m. 46 passengers and all six crew members were killed. Uh, and like I said, Flight 21 never even made it to its first stop. BC Forestry pilot. Sorry? This is just crazy. I know. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. BC Forestry pilot Slim Shirk, which is the coolest name ever, was dis- Slim Shirk. Yes, I'm the Slim Shirk. <laughs> <laughs> he was dispatched to fly over the scene and could see almost immediately that it was a crashed airplane. He said he was not expecting to identify so much of the debris as, like, passengers from the plane. Oh, God. I know. He counted more than 20 passengers when flying over and had to, like, drop rolls of toilet paper out of his plane at each sighting to mark the spot for investigators who would then be arriving on the ground. Isn't that awful? Yeah, because I guess with most planes, you expect a lot of just, like, everything is everywhere, including not being able to identify people at all in any way, shape, or form, or having, like, large body parts, even. 
as mm-hmm. callous as that sounds, but this sounds like it was such a big plane that One, the I bodies think that... were kind of preserved based on just the other conditions, too. Maybe, like, the way it went down and stuff and the speed it was going. I don't know. I, I did read something somewhere that said... There's a plane um, going over the... me right now. Because the tail separated from the main body, the plane would have been depressurized. And so that could potentially be why so many bodies were actually like could actually be seen from overhead because they all came flying out. Got sucked out. Yeah. Super awful. I didn't I know. know how to say that in any other I way. I know. It's super it terrible. It does create a vacuum though. That is it does. the yeah, truth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. After three days of searching for the crash site, volunteer search and rescue crew found the bodies of all 52 people on board, some of them still strapped in their seats. That's fucked up. The victims came from four countries, including Norway, and they all left behind partners, children, parents, and friends. Four of the victims on board were children. I know. It's awful. The RCMP, Transport Canada, and Canadian Pacific Air investigators began their uh, investigation and did a systematic reconstruction of the aircraft and chemical tests on the wreckage, victims, and their belongings. Like, they're trying to figure out what the heck happened here. Yeah. Investigators also poured over the flight insurance records, cargo manifests, maintenance records to try and figure out how the, like, what happened, how the tail separated, why there was smoke everywhere, what this explosion they heard was, like, what the heck happened up there? Yeah, did someone have a chemical on board that reacted with something else at pressure and altitude, or was it, you know, mechanical? Did something break and spark and... Yeah. Now, remember, again, I I am going to go into this a little bit more in a bit, but this is at a time when there is no security to get on an airplane. You can smoke on an airplane. No passports. There's no, no, like, they don't check your ID. They don't care who you are. You just buy a ticket and walk on. There isn't even... um, It's like a train. They don't even... Yeah, exactly. They don't even, like, register where your seat is. Like, there's no not even a sign. No, it's just, like, one adult. A coroner's inquest was done uh, and concluded that, quote, an explosive substance foreign to the normal contents of the aircraft caused the crash. They determined that the main body of the plane was consumed by fire where it fell, but the tail, which was found 500 meters away, was not at all. Yeah, it broke off, and then I think the speed of the plane and something else probably caused the fire when it hit the ground. Well, the, the official... tail was already detached. Deta- the... Detached. But how did it get detached? Well, that's the question. So the official cause was listed as explosion of a device which resulted in aerial dis- disintegration, and it was classified as sabotage, tail failure, and total loss of control. So they're saying that... And explosive. There was no fire damage on the tail. No fire damage to the tail and something exploded in the plane. Yeah, so that wouldn't make sense because there would at least be a singed edge where the explosion happened. What do you mean? Well, you're saying there's no fire damage on the tail, but no. if there was an explosion that caused the tail to detach, there should be a singed edge where the tail broke off still because... 
Well, I don't the know if there was a singed edge or not. It just wasn't like engulfed in flames. So the mm. explosion didn't happen anywhere near the tail. It just caused the tail to break off. Is really okay. what they're saying here. Okay. Crash investigators also found substances such as acid, potassium nitrate, and carbon at the site consistent with a low-velocity explosion that led them to believe a bomb in the rear bathroom of the plane was the cause of the explosion. Potassium nitrate and carbon suggested gunpowder, and they found traces of acid on the pink nightgown of a flight attendant also consistent with a bomb. Um, so it seemed that there was two different types of explosives for yeah. the bomb, which was... So one in the bathroom and one liquid? It's just, it's inexperienced to use two different types of explosives for one bomb. Well, yeah, it's also another whole other category of things that can go wrong. Yeah, it's by just... By introducing two methods. It's definitely weird. It is weird. Okay. It was determined that the bomb was set off shortly after 3.30 p.m. in the rear bathroom while the DC-6B plane was at a cruising altitude of 16,000 feet above sea level, tearing a meter-wide hole in the side of the plane, which obviously caused the tail to separate and sent yeah. the plane into a downward spiral. Okay. So a bomb yeah. went off in the bathroom that and makes blew sense a hole now. in the side of the friggin' plane. Uh, so this is where we're going to talk about kind of what was going on to get on a plane in the 1960s, which is much different than it looks like today. You show uh, up. There was no verification of ID, no checking your carry-on. I'm assuming they didn't scan your carry-on because I don't think that they had the technology to do that back in the 1960s, nor were they even thinking about it. Uh, you could no. smoke on board the aircraft. Like, as soon as you got on there, you could light up a cigarette. Security checkpoints in airports were not added until the early 70s, so there's absolutely no security checkpoints. Uh, this was also a time before the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, or CATSA, so a time when people could basically bring anything on board, including, like, you could bring ammunition, guns, gunpowder, um, also, Patricia, who recommended this case to me, said that uh, this was a time when you could buy gunpowder at, like, a store as long as you were 16. Jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, this could have even been someone who was just in the bathroom. Like, you could literally buy had something a 16-year-old at the store. Yeah. And you yeah. could bring anything you wanted. So nobody's checking. Even if you brought that kind of, you were bringing that kind of stuff on for, like, innocent purposes, like, you, you yeah. could, which means that... Anybody bringing them on board for sinister reasons can do so as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Security has obviously eventually increased over the years due to terrorist activity against commercial aviation. And then um, we know that 9-11 completely changed the way security in airports um, and in everyday life was conducted. Today, everyone is screened and all airline personnel have to wear photo ID badges to limit access to the aircrafts. Mm -hmm. uh, so the report also concluded for this crash that the bomb did not have a delayed ignition device, meaning that it would have exploded five or ten seconds after it was triggered. There's no delay on this thing. Somebody couldn't have, like, set it for five minutes and yeah, then, Yeah, like, gotten you know, to the front yeah. of the plane back to their seat or something. Yeah. yeah. 
A metal mm-hmm. alloy was picked up in x-rays of some of the bodies seeming to be part of a detonator, but there was no timer found. Okay. It was assumed since the bomb would go off in under 10 seconds after being triggered and the location of the bomb on the plane that it was somebody on board, of course, who was responsible for the explosion. (laughs) They also determined that if it was somebody not on board that placed the bomb there for whatever reason, the rear bathroom was like not the place to do it. I don't know why. There's no explanation for this. It just... In all the like research that I could find, it just says that like well, probably it was just far from where yeah. you enter the plane. Probably, yeah. It was just like yeah, if it was somebody not on board, like the rear bathroom doesn't make sense, so not it. Yeah, and I was like, okay. It's probably one of those huge planes that just has like like you know how a private jet has like the one door in that front location. It's kind of like that, I think. And maybe it also had a front bathroom, so they would assume that like if you were if you were gonna yeah. be somebody off off the plane who was like running on to do that it would be in the front you bathroom. would use the front one yeah, yeah maybe that possibly that makes more sense i just was like okay that's assumptatory weird <laughs> no official suspect has ever been confirmed as responsible for the explosion on flight 21 this is still unsolved today which is why i said at the beginning of the episode i have no idea why this doesn't get the same amount of attention as like db cooper mh370 these other aviation mysteries like this is one of the biggest aviation mysteries in canadian history and nobody knows about it but i think people could look at that and be like maybe it was a terror well not a terrorist attack but it just looks like a plane malfunction looks like something went wrong and the plane broke it was definitely not a plane malfunction no, but I feel like that's people easily just push it aside because of that reason. Maybe. But I agree. Like, what the hell? I know. I just feel like even D.B. Cooper is like such an old case, but people still talk about it. It got a whole they documentary. Do like, it. where's the do- Netflix documentary for Flight 21? Where is it? I don't know. And when <laughs> when one is made, I would like a spot, please. Me. I have things to say. You heard it here first, people. She has <laughs> things to say. <laughs> Uh, The RCMP and coroner's investigation did identify four main persons of interest over the years. So nobody has ever been confirmed as responsible. There's been no like official suspects, but we have four main persons of interest um, that have never been able really to be excluded. Okay. So the first person of interest on board Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21 is Douglas Garfield Edgar. Douglas was a 40-year-old gambler from Surrey, B.C., who purchased $125,000 worth of life insurance just 30 minutes before Flight 21 took off. (laughs) Um, I don't think this... I don't know if this is something you can still do, but I guess you could purchase life insurance, like, at the airport. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you still do that? You can buy traveler's insurance and stuff like that, but I don't know if you can buy life insurance. That makes sense. Maybe it was, like, all the same thing back then. But so he bought bought himself an $125,000 life insurance policy half an hour before the flight took off. Um, The theory here was that he potentially killed himself to provide for his wife, daughter, and niece who all lived with him. Uh, Douglas was on his way to Prince George to work at a pulp mill. And the RCMP could not confirm that he was actually expected at any mills in the Prince George area. Uh, 
they also wondered if this is why he took so little luggage with him on the flight. But that's really the only reasons that they have for Douglas. I think those are actually pretty good reasons given the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, weirdly okay. enough, everything you're saying, I was like, uh-huh. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, tell me I don't more. Know. Tell me I don't more. Know. I don't have any more on that one. I think that's why I was just like, oh, that seems. But yeah, I mean, $125,000 worth of life of insurance. You buy it right before you take off. You take like no luggage, but you're supposed to be going away to work. But there's no mm-hmm. confirmation that you were expected at any of these mills to work. Like, yeah, I guess. It's enough factors stacked up that I could see it. Yeah. Okay. But who else? So person of interest number two, we have Stefan Colazar, who was a 54-year-old father of five from Vancouver, B.C. (sighs) Stefan was a mining explosives expert who was en route to a job near Prince George. He was known to have a temper and was charged in 1958 with murder for a deadly brawl and was eventually acquitted on a reduced charge of manslaughter. Police found no metal fragments when they x-rayed Stephen Colazar's body, um, which means that he wouldn't have been close to the bomb. You would Mm -hmm. assume if if you were close to it when it went off that there would be metal fragments in your body. Um, But it was Stefan's connection to explosives and his criminal record that put him on the police's radar as a person of interest. If it's just a matter of, like, doing the last step to detonate it and then you have 10 seconds, though... If your seat's up near the front and you know what you're doing, if you have the door unlatched and you're just putting it down somewhere, Mm -hmm. I think you could get pretty far from it in 10 seconds. Like you could run pretty fast. Or just like speed walk. That'd be so obvious. People are like, what are you doing? (laughs) I just want to get back to my seat. Literally terrible. Yeah. Person of interest number three was Paul Vandermeulen from Richmond, B.C., Paul was 35 years old, and his psychiatrist said he had deep anger toward the world. After two years in the military, Paul had worked a series of jobs, including working as a licensed private investigator and managing a water softening company, but all of these ventures had failed. He had recently become a partner in a mining venture and planned to work as a prospector in the bush. Um, He, too, had taken out a life insurance policy worth over $100,000, but he took it out two months before the flight. So I think Paul Paul ended up being connected to this just because his psychiatrist kind of said that he had this deep-seated anger toward the world. Um, He was kind of lost after his military career. You know, his jobs weren't working out and yeah. Investigators did find copper fragments in Paul's body when they x-rayed him. Copper was foreign to the aircraft, but was consistent with uh, blasting caps, which could have suggested that he was particularly close when it went off. But, like, he could have just been sitting really close to the bathroom. Yeah. Again, this is a time where there's no assigned seating on flights. So I think we have that no one's idea. a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. I, tend I think to guy number one. <laughs> Door number one. So, person of interest number four is Peter Broughton. Peter Broughton oh, I was. One more. There's one more, yeah. And actually, we've talked about you know the criminologist Michael Arntfeld, Ar- Artfield. We've talked about him mm-hmm. on the show before. I think so. He 
thinks that Peter Broughton is the most likely suspect for the bomber of Flight Whoa, 21. Oh, bury the lead. Okay. <laughs> That's Jesus. just what he seems to think, but I will tell you why. So, okay. Peter Broughton was 29 years old at the time of Flight 21, living with his mother in a boarding house in Port Coquitlam, B.C. Peter Broughton had been recently turned down for an avionics program at a university, and it was thought that this made him feel that the system was against him. He was on his way north to accept a job offer, and he owned a considerable amount of gunpowder. When the RCMP searched Broughton's home, it was found that four 11-ounce tins of gunpowder could not be accounted for from his collection. Yikes. Criminologist Michael Artfield describes Peter Broughton as what is known as an injustice collector. Uh, So this is a person in criminal profiling who considers themselves a victim and really carefully nourishes these grievances. Um, He said, quote, as these misrepresented or misinterpreted slights and injustices accumulate, each one serves a larger narrative of victimization and confirms the individual's distorted perceptions of the fairness of the world and the futility of playing by the rules. Um, this reminds me a lot of the mentality of our, um, shoot, what's the word? I'm not sure what you're going for here. Men. Just men. Just men. Men who... Overarching. Men who say it's their women's fault that that they can't have sex or nobody wants to have sex with them. Yes, this like mentality, this victimization, distorted like perception of fairness mentality reminds me so much of that. Um, Yeah, I could see that. But I guess after Michael Arntfield had like done a profile of this guy, he really felt that he fit the profile of that kind of a person. And then after finding out that, like, he had just been turned down admission to an avionics program at a university. Kind of a weird Right, like a weird connection. These gunpowder tins um, are missing. Are missing. It's just a lot of yeah. stuff at the same time. Um, so It's he just feel- too hard to not look into. Yeah, so he feels he's the most plausible suspect. Mm-hmm. It was also noted that when the RCMP interviewed Peter Broughton's mother following the crash, she told them that he gave her like a weird warning two nights before and told her not to go in his bedroom because something dangerous was in there. Like, don't enter my bedroom for several days because there's something dangerous in there. Um, he also boarded the flight without any luggage. Now, oh. her mo- his mother I later was looking re- worse and worse. Yeah, his mother later retracted this statement and whatever might have been in his bedroom that was dangerous was gone by the time RCMP detectives searched the room, but that's definitely weird. Strange. Yeah. Very. And again, boarding the flight without luggage if you're going somewhere to work just doesn't make sense to me. That on its own should just like get people flagged. Right? Like you go somewhere to go to work for a couple weeks or something like you're bringing clothes especially if you work a trade right uh the rcmp detectives did find that peter broughton had taken out two books from the library in the weeks before the explosion one was like a sex intercourse manual weird (laughs) 
And the other book was on airliners, including the complete schematics of a Douglas DC-6B. Now, this could be suspicious, but we also know that this guy was obviously into aviation if he was trying to get into an aviation-style program at a university. Well, he was trying, but he got denied. But, like, we know he's interested in it, so I don't know. I understand why that's a a point of, like, that sticks out. But I also am like, eh. You could argue either way on that one, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, Another suspicious fact about Peter Broughton that just kind of made Arthur and P detectives think about him as a possibility was that his body was found in an aisle of the aircraft, suggesting he possibly tried to make it back to his seat and never did. Okay, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Well, then now I feel like number four. Yeah. So, yeah, the criminologist that we talked about definitely feels like number four is the most plausible, and he was kind of part of a reinvestigation that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um in, t- in November of 2018 so mm-hmm. I'm sure he like knows a lot more than what I just said but that's kind of the information that I could find but I agree that suspect number four seems the most likely and has the most things that are like hard to explain with other reasons yeah So yeah, in November of 2018, this case was reopened and reinvestigated by CBC News journalists who interviewed dozens of individuals connected to the crash. They accessed thousands of pages of decades-old documentation through Freedom of Information requests, including the original RCMP and Transport Canada investigative reports on the crash. The material was shared. Huh? (laughs) I would hope so, if you're reinvestigating it. Yeah. The material was shared with specialists, among them an aviation crash investigator, explosives experts, um, criminologist Michael Arntfield, and the goal was to determine whether modern analysis and forensic technology could help shed new light on the cause of the plane crash. Mm Mm-hmm. This reinvestigation was shared in a six-episode podcast on season two of CBC's Uncover, if you're interested. Ooh, okay. One of the experts who reviewed the investigation materials on Flight 21 was Larry Vance, who worked for the Transportation Safety Board for 25 years. He reviewed the Transport Canada original investigative notes and reports on the crash uh, and details about the situation the pilots found themselves in and said, quote, I would say that these guys did whatever they could do within their capacity to try and save the airplane and save themselves and most of all save their passengers. They tried their best they could do, but it was an unsurvivable situation that they were in. Oh, poor guys. Right. Uh, Mike Arnfield, who we've, of course, spoken about on the podcast, is a former police detective and criminologist who holds a Ph.D. in criminal justice. Um, He has a special interest in cold cases and now teaches at the University of Western Ontario in London. Um, He used a computer algorithm that compares the crash to other aircraft disasters like mass murders, suicide bombings and actions by other suicidal individuals. Okay. 
He said in an interview that it is significant that the killer used a hybrid bomb. So that's what I was talking about earlier with like the, the two different kinds, two different kinds of explosives, explosives, sorry, included in the bomb um, rather than just using like dynamite. Yeah. He says it's overkill and speaks to the killer's like inexperience. Yeah. Like they weren't sure what they would need to do to make it work. So they way overdid it. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much okay. what he's saying. Like he he thinks that it means the person like really didn't have a lot of experience with it. And like you mm-hmm. said, wanted to overkill it to make sure that it did what they wanted. It got yeah. the desired results. He also said with respect to the suspect Paul Vander Mullen that he was carrying almost a thousand dollars in cash and Mike Arnfield just kind of thought like why would anybody especially 1965 like a thousand bucks was a lot of money why would anybody bring that much cash on a plane just to blow it up it doesn't make a lot of sense no idea I thought maybe he wanted to look like he was going to need money where he was going but this was an in Canada flight and there was also no security at all in 1965 so they don't check anyways for that if you're just going Canada to Canada um that they wouldn't have checked it all in 1965. So that's definitely not a factor. It was also noted that Vandermeulen had a 33 Magnum revolver on him. Um, but again, Mike Artfield didn't think much of this because Vandermeulen was an expat American and he said guns are just part of their culture, aren't they? Yeah, it's an accessory. Wouldn't leave home without it. Lord, I hate to laugh at that, but. America. It's true. Like I mentioned earlier, Michael Arnfield believes Peter Broughton is the most plausible suspect for who bombed Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21. The wreckage of Flight 21 can still be found at the crash site near Dog Creek. You can like go visit it. Um, for years, that was the only place that the loved ones of the victims on board could go and pay their respects. In 2013, a stone monument was put up at 100 Mile House Airport that lists the names of every passenger on the flight, including whoever was responsible for the bomb, obviously. Yeah. Um, Prior to that, family and friends, yeah, they could only go and, like, put flowers and notes and stuff at the actual aircraft debris. That's so sad. I know. Grant McConaughey was posthumously inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame in 1973 and following its formation in 1979, the Canadian Business Hall of Fame. Named in his honor, Grant McConaughey Way in Richmond, BC is the access artery into Vancouver International Airport, home base for Canadian Pacific Airlines. Through the Canadian Forces and the Air Cadet League of Canada, the 810 Grant McConaughey Air Cadets was formed in 1971. Uh, McConaughey Peak is also named for him. And the McConaughey neighborhood in Edmonton, Alberta is also named after Grant McConaughey as part of the Pilot Sound residential area. Um, so, yeah, Grant McConaughey had a massive impact on Clearly. Canadian aviation. He is very well respected and well known in the aviation community, if you will. <laughs> Um, And the explosion of Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21 remains the largest unsolved crash in Canadian history. Some people believe it was the first act of terrorism in Canada and the largest unsolved terrorist attack on the country. I don't have an opinion on what I think it is, to be honest. I'm so confused. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, but that is what I have for Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21 crash. Like I said, it's still unsolved. There is that six-part um, podcast that CBC did on, on it. Um, there's really not that much that I haven't covered here. It's mostly just like being able to listen to the people actually speak about the evidence, speak about the research and their own like, yeah. you know, personal opinions and expertise. Um, but I, I truly can't believe that this isn't more well known in Canada. Oh, it's crazy. I know. I'm shocked that I hadn't really heard much about this, even though it happened before I was born. But it still seems like it would be something we would have heard about. Yeah, I think I think just because we see so much D.B. Cooper, so much other like these big sensationalized um, aviation mysteries. I'm just like, yeah, this is Canada's biggest biggest for sure. And nobody well. knows about it. So thank you so much to listener Patricia for suggesting this. Um, it was really, really interesting to research. And I always like learning about something I don't know a lot about, which in this case is airplanes. <laughs> aviation i really don't know anything about that so true it was fun um yeah but of course no, like, it was bonkers our hearts go to all the families of those who lost any of the people that were on board the crew members the children the loved ones super sad it's, yeah it's devastating mm-hmm. but that's it that's all i have today happy tuesday well thanks for that you're so welcome We'll see everybody next week. Same place, uh, same si- same time next week. <laughs> same place, same time next week. If you haven't done so already, please don't forget to give us a five-star review or rating on Spotify and Apple. It really helps out the show. You guys have been coming through with the ratings and the reviews, and we definitely see it. In- I love the reviews. We love the reviews. We love reading them, and it really does help out the show. I know we ask all the time and it's something that we're constantly bringing up, but it means more to us than, you know, um, and don't already follow us on socials, Instagram. We use the most at podcast by proxy. We do have a Twitter and a TikTok, and you can email us anything case suggestions to the email podcast by proxy at gmail.com. Um, I think that's finally it for me, but it's been a slice. So it has. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. (laughs) Okay.